Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, weirdos, it's Rachel, and I am here with... Jess! And we... (laughs) Jess has been on the other side of the microphone too long. And we're here for a very special, promised, bonus episode while we continue to prep for season three, which is coming to you on September 25th, a Wednesday, obviously. Woo! The best Wednesday of September, I would argue. So we will wake you up when September ends (laughs) with We're Sing Season 3. But in the meantime... We are here to share some facts that you shared via voice message. Before we get into it, just a reminder of what voice messages are. So we make this podcast using an app called Anchor, and it's great, and we love it. And if you're interested in making a podcast, you should check it out. But even if you're not interested in making a podcast, you should check out the Anchor app or website, because when you go to the Weirdest Things dashboard, you are able to send us voice messages. They can be up to 60 seconds long, and you can say whatever you want. This one is a personal favorite of mine. Hey guys, do you actually get these messages? I find your show really good. I'm from Mexico and I just wanted to let you guys know that you got you guys got some listeners down here and you guys are pretty cool. I would love to hang out with you guys sometime. Bye-bye. Oh my god, we want to hang out with you. Same. Absolutely same. So yeah, you can send us all sorts of voice messages. You can send us ideas or facts for an episode like the one you're about to hear. Or you can just send us nice messages about how we're cool and you want to hang out. I love that. Or you could leave those in five-star Apple reviews. Jess is nodding. Jess knows how important it is for us to get five-star Apple reviews. Crucial. Here's the thing, though. Even if you don't listen to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week on Apple... Leaving a five-star review helps us algorithmically. It means more readers see the show. And with us gearing up for season three, that is especially important because we really want to have the best shot of reaching as many weird, wonderful people as possible. The more people listen, the more support we get for the show, the more able we are to do things like, I don't know, maybe have a live show somewhere other than New York City. Ooh. <gasps> what an idea. You can make it happen by leaving a five-star review on Apple. Wow, so much power. And one more very important thing you can do via voice message or on Twitter at Weirdest underscore Thing or on our secret Facebook group, which you can find by searching Weirdest Thing on Facebook or in a five-star Apple review. 
what can you do in all of those locations? I'll tell you what, Jess, you can leave a question (laughs) for me, for you, for anyone on Weirdest Thing. So if you have questions about like how we make the podcast, what we do when we're hanging out and singing karaoke together. Our favorite snacks. Yeah. Those are all the questions I can think of asking anyone, but <laughs> that's why it's not my um, job to come up with questions for the Q&A. It's my job to come up with answers. So please send us your Q&A questions ASAP because we would love to have some fun teaching you the weirdest things there are to know about us. All right. With all that housekeeping out of the way, I'm going to start by reading a couple of our favorite five-star reviews. I will pepper these throughout our episode, don't worry, we are getting to weird facts. And if you sent one in, it's probably about to be played. Hopefully, you fact-checked it first. Mm. Because I sure did. <laughs> okay, so uh, Still Weird left us a review titled, I miss you, and by the way, you're amazing. <gasps> Hi. Oh. You don't know me, but I love you. Not in a creepy way, but in a listening to your podcast, Save Me Through My Commute From Hell, Yes Science, Yes Good Journalism, Yes Girl Power kind of way. Oh my God. So please keep the episodes coming, but also enjoy your break because hashtag self-care, love weirdo for life. (sighs) Oh my God, she gets it. Wow. Yes. Hashtag self-care indeed. The same to you. Still weird. The same to you. I love you and not in a creepy way, but in a hashtag self-care kind of way. Definitely. Amy Layla says, delightful. I just finished the last episode from the first season, meaning I'm officially caught up. I feel both A, sad and empty, and B, stoked to delight and horrify people at cocktail parties. But I might have to re-listen to a few highlights before my next get-together so I don't accidentally tell a story about a woman whose head exploded in the Parthenon while giving birth to rabbits. My memory isn't the best. must be all the cocktails. I feel you, girl. I feel you. Wow. Definitely been there. There's so much emotion packed into that. Yeah. I feel it. Deep connection to everyone who listens to this show, but especially the people who leave us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Big time. So, okay, now we're going to get started with some of our listener facts. I have heard these to make sure that they are, in fact, facts. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jess has not heard them, so. I'm in the dark. Here we go. Hi there, this is Brandon Mullins. Uh, I'm a teacher down here in Clearwater, Florida. I had a weird fact that I had always told people was true. Um, and I remember reading about it a long time ago, but I bet there's more truth to it than I know. Um, I come from the animal husbandry world and I had talked with some colleagues or read an article with them about uh, a gentleman in Baltimore that had trained one or two ravens to pick up loose change. And those ravens would then take that loose change into a special made vending machine that would dispense raven food. And because they're a social animal, they would then teach other ravens how to do it. And so this gentleman in Baltimore ended up making like tens of thousands of dollars off of uh, a colony of ravens that all taught each other how to go find um, change all over the city. I thought that was interesting. And I would love to hear more about it if you know if that's true or not. Thanks. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I did some Googling. And at, at first, Baltimore ravens did not turn up any of I, the stories I wanted it to. <laughs> um, luckily, I'm a champion Googler. Yes. Uh, to avoid all of the sports. Yes. <laughs> and so it turns out this was actually someone in Brooklyn mm. uh, using crows. So the guy named Josh Klein, who is like a hacker, a maker, a writer, he had potty trained his cat, which is a thing you can do. Totally. And um, I know that's a thing you can do because you can do it on The Sims. <laughs> and it's also in real life. <laughs> it's true. Nothing on The Sims is fake. Correct. It's also where I learned uh, how you make babies. 
There's Woo-hooing. just a, yes, woohooing. <laughs> Babies can be made in bed, in the shower, end of list. Correct. So Josh Klein potty trained his cat and inspired by the mess of pesky crows in his native Seattle, which some people were talking about figuring out how to exterminate, he started wondering how you could put them to work. And so he decided to train them. He built a vending machine designed to dispense peanuts. Mm-hmm. which crows like to eat. Oh. And so he started by giving them coins, peanuts, and access to the vending machine. And then in a second stage, he gave them only coins without the peanuts. And they would bang them on the machine in frustration. Oh um, then he rigged the machine to dispense a peanut as a reward for each coin, which they learned how to do because crows are very, very smart. Mm. And then he did a final step where they got nothing, but he, like, strew the coins around near the machine. Mm. And crows are smart enough that they were like, get to pick up that coin, put it in the machine, get a freaking peanut. And um, <laughs> but then there was all this controversy because, according to Klein, the New York Times wrote like a really shoddy article. And then when they had to correct some of the details, they like overcorrected and implied that he'd lied to them and his whole experiment was made up. Oh, um, and I would have to do a bit deeper of a dive to sure. really you know, come out uh, one way or the other. But uh, there are a lot of articles about this experiment that have not had corrections run saying that it didn't happen. So either a lot of outlets never bothered to correct their fraudulent articles or he did indeed train some crows to do something with a vending machine. Yeah. So as far as I can tell, he never actually used this to like make tens of thousands of dollars in street change. But he did release a open source platform called Crowbox. Oh, boy. (laughs) Where it's basically the The original bird box. (laughs) (laughs) So it's basically like the basic instructions you need to build a contraption and then train crows to deposit a particular thing in it. Sure. So they're like, they could pick up trash. They could get spare coins. But I couldn't find anything actually reporting like successful use cases. Yeah. But like all of the components of the experiment are very believable because crows are incredibly smart and great at using tools. So yeah, this is fascinating and I will definitely work on finding more on it. Yeah. I'm also like imagining a kind of miniature vending machine. Like it's just (laughs) like an incredibly cute image. Yeah. Adorable. Yeah. And we actually have a, a second one from the same weirdo. So let's get into that now. Hi there, this is Brandon Mullins from the Clearwater, Florida area. I'm a science teacher down here. I had read a while ago that bed bugs reproduce by something called traumatic insemination, which is essentially where they um, impregnate the female bed bug by stabbing them anywhere on their body with their reproductive organs. I just thought that was interesting, and I had wondered if this is a successful way of reproduction. Also, what other animals use something like that um anyway thank you for what you do i really enjoy your podcast (laughs) thank you for what you do brandon the children are our future so i don't know how things are down in Clearwater, but as a new yorker i have to say is it a successful reproductive strategy unfortunately yes (laughs) (laughs) have you ever had bed bugs i haven't but i know so many people who who same and And like it's yeah sorry no i was just gonna say i always think of the broad city episode where they just like 
literally have breakdowns and they have to put all their clothes like in the garbage or like in the oven. Right. It makes me so upset and not because of the whole like, ew, yuck, bed bugs. Like that's a stigma we should definitely get rid of. It's not something that happens because people are dirty. Totally. But it upsets me because I think about like having to do that much work to make my possessions safe. Totally. Again, and like I just, can't, I think I would just sit down and die. Literally, same. <laughs> I would let the bed bugs take me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I surrender to you. <laughs> but yes, they do use something called traumatic insemination. Oh my god! Um, females have sperm receptacles where the sperm can then migrate to the ovaries. <gasps> and what's interesting is that there is a functional genital tract, but it's only f- they only use it for laying fertilized You're eggs. You're kidding me. So they always just get impaled? <laughs> yes. Um, and so some, uh, depending on the species of bed bug, they can be that sometimes the receptacles are like visible mm. from the outside. And so the male bed bug like stabs there specifically. Others, they are not visible. So that's the ones where they just do random stabbing. Oh my God. Which sounds very not great. Um, not very sexy. Also, one fact I found is that male bed bugs have evolved receptors on. They're pokey bits, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's a scientific mm-hmm. term. I will. And um, after impaling a female, they can they can taste in quotes taste <laughs> if a female has been recently mated, and if Ooh. they if they take note of the presence of of another male, they will not copulate as long and ejaculate less fluid. <laughs> so I guess be like, what's what's the point? Yeah. Why bother? And as to whether or not they're other instances of this in the animal kingdom, there are, but all like very tiny things like rotifers, which is the group that water bears are in, mm. pinworms, fruit flies. And these are all like not all of the species in this category do this. But okay. Apparently with fruit flies, they will stab through the body wall into the genital tract. That's one way to get in there. <laughs> Flatworms have something called penis fencing, so that's exciting. <gasps> Uh, There's some spiders and sea slugs. This is just great. I'm going to read this. They'll make repeated small injections into the dorsal surface of their mate, interrupted by synchronized circling movements, culminating in standard general insemination. So sometimes traumatic insemination can just be foreplay. What purpose does it serve? I don't know. But um, (laughs) just stab. It certainly sounds poetic. (laughs) Um, so yeah, that's everything I have to say about that. So wow, this is already so much. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Here's let's get in one more before we go to a break. Cool. Hello, weirdest thing. This is Ian, PhD in plant science. My weird fact to share with the world is that seagrasses, like those in the genus Zostera, um, used to live on land or at least close to land, and they did the reverse evolutionary trend of algae that colonized fresh water and then eventually became terrestrial plants. And Zostera are flowering plants that move from land to fresh water back into the ocean and now are an important global ecosystem. I love that. And it's true. They're algae that migrated back to the sea like 75 to 100 million years ago, Mm -hmm. according to what I found. Because, you know, all life originated from under the sea. Totally. And um, was that a Sebastian voice? It was. <laughs> <laughs> then some of it went back. You know, you have like your standard fish that are just, they've been there. Mm-hmm. But then any mammals in the water had to come to land and then make a return. It's funny because 
One time I was in Hawaii on a beautiful beach mm. and I may have been on a substance. <laughs> was it pizza? Was I won't say. But I, <laughs> I got very emotional and spent like 45 minutes floating in the water talking about how amazing it is that whales emerged from the sea and then returned to the sea. Yeah. And I was just like, they came back to the sea. So um, anyway, Ian, I also find the story of the seagrass really beautiful. Aren't you an Aquarius? I am. That sea. <laughs> that's it. That's it. I just <laughs> makes complete sense. <laughs> love crying about ocean. <laughs> but yeah, I think that the like weird evolutionary trajectory of the tree of life as a whole is so fascinating. It really is. And when you look at whale evolution, I was looking at a picture of it to remind myself mm-hmm. before we got to the studio. And you've got all of these things that look like like little like awkward little pups, mm. you know, becoming whales. And then you have the one line at the top that just shoots straight out to the hippo. That oh, my just God. Like, that was just the proto whale being like, I'm going back to the water, yeah. but not too far. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> Uh, Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back with more of your facts. Okay, we're back. And before we get back into the facts, I want to share a couple more of our favorite five-star Apple reviews, which, reminder, please leave one. Do it. too. Get your mom to leave one. (laughs) It's great. We love them. Okay, this one, I don't know what this username is. It's either... I won't rem or I won trem. (laughs) Fun banter. The host's humor and rapport is my favorite thing. I'm also often surprised by how often the hosts get me sucked into all their stories, even when I thought the topics wouldn't interest me, like sports or corpses. (laughs) Relatable. The two genders. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm definitely more of a corpse. Mm, I'm more of a sport. (laughs) Wow, a perfect pair. (laughs) Then we have Sadie Too Sassy, quenching my science thirst. Being someone with a biology background who works in accounting, my science brain is dying of thirst. This podcast is a cool drink of water, bringing my poor, shriveled science brain back to life. I also like to share snippets with my coworkers who probably don't care. Love this podcast. Sadie, your coworkers do care. They must. They must. You're doing great work. Good luck with your hydration. It's very important. Hashtag self-care. Yes, hashtag self-care. Okay, now we've got some more facts. Hi, it's Betsy from Massachusetts. I learned today that elephants are the only animal that cannot jump. Also, fleas can jump 350 times their length. Yeah, so looking into this, I found some really interesting stuff. It's not 100% true. So it is commonly said that elephants are the only mammals that can't jump. Mm. But even that... There's like a little more to it. Can they do a little hop? <laughs> so I think baby baby elephants can jump a sure. bit. They can, they can. They're more spry. Yeah, but if if your definition of a jump is like an upward mm-hmm. movement where none of your feet are on the ground, mm-hmm. elephants cannot do that because they're very heavy. No. <laughs> really, it, it makes sense as an evolutionary trade off because like jumping is an evasive yeah. move sure. if you're not like a predator, and elephants are too big to get their bodies off the ground that way. But also, because they're that big, they can just lift, like, one of their feet and be like, go away. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, then there's some other animals, like hippos, 
also can't like shoot themselves up off the ground, but they can, according to one source I was reading, these animals can run in ways that get all four of their feet off. They can like gallop. I was going to say, I'm imagining a galloping. Yeah, a nice horsey hippo gallop. Yeah. So again, it's like, what is a jump? Mm. Mm, Very complex. And then there are non-mammals that definitely cannot jump. For example, a snake can lunge, but a snake can't like hoist its Levitate. whole body up off the ground <laughs> and thinking about trying to do that made me really happy. It made me think of that viral python whose name I always forget even though viral he was my python. favorite. Yeah. There was this great video of him the door <gasps> opens yes, and he yes. slams down. <laughs> so I feel like he probably tried to jump every day of his life and just could never quite do it. Also like have you ever seen a an earthworm jump? Mm. Snail? These are all good questions. Yeah, so like there are a lot of animals that can't jump because of how they exist by staying stuck to the ground or their body is a tube. Yeah. (laughs) But they have their own kinds of evasive maneuvers and it's all okay. Then I believe we have another one from, from Betsy. Hi, it's Betsy from Massachusetts. I learned today that flamingos can drink water at boiling point. Oh. Yeah, so this was another one that I thought was so fascinating. And again, there is a little bit of a correction to make here, but it's so fascinating. So some species of flamingos live in these super salty lakes that are hostile to Mm. most life. Mm -hmm. And they rely on their really tough skin and scales to prevent burns on their feet and legs. Oh, So they're very, very, like, tough birds. Yeah. Who knew? Hardy. And so they can drink water at near boiling point, which, like, I, you know, we could quibble about boiling point, but I can't drink water at near boiling point. Yeah. Or I guess I could, but I would be really unhappy Are afterwards. you like an ice water drinker or a room temperature water drinker? I actually like drinking hot water. Like hot? Yeah. Like I I love a, a tea temperature water just like in my water thermos. That's a hot take. I don't know why I do. I find it soothing, I guess. So yeah, they can drink this hot water so that they can take advantage of freshwater geysers. Because the lakes they're living in are very salty. That's not really good for drinking. Yeah. And they also sometimes have glands in their head to remove the salt. Really? And drain it out their nasal cavity. What? Like a built in neti pot. Oh my God. Flamingos, the clearest cytoses in the animal kingdom. <laughs> Here's one from another Rachel. I don't believe in that, but you know, whatever, live your life. Hi, guys. My name is Rachel, and I have the weirdest fact for you. My weirdest fact is that the giant Canadian goose was thought to be extinct, and in the 1950s, they experimented and successfully brought it back. Isn't that nuts? I thought so, too. Okay, bye, other Rachel. Oh, other Rachel. And that was only 23 seconds. I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) We're impressed, too. You sure got Jess. What a Um, delight. Thank you, other Rachel. Yeah, so apparently they did think the giant Canada goose was extinct in the 1950s. And then they found a small population in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, Biologists were able to identify them as indeed being giant Canada geese, not Mm. some other manner. They of a large just, goose. They were just hiding away. Yeah. And the subspecies numbers have gone up. So now you you can find them in, in parks and other urban areas. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah. I had no idea story. that we thought they'd gone extinct. That was news like to me. The regular goose? Like or is it the giant version? Yeah, so the giant Canada goose is a subspecies of Canada goose. Oh. Um it is the largest subspecies. <laughs> Big boys. They they are indeed. It's often mistaken for Moffat's Canada goose. Oh. But they have a lower call and a larger build to body size ratio. <laughs> Just a little thicker. Yeah. Oh, this is a really cool one. My name is Kaylin, and my weird fact is about the unsung heroes, nine scientists, that died in 16 rooms full of food. So our story begins with the siege of Leningrad that lasted over 900 days and accounted for thousands, hundreds of thousands of different casualties because of starvation. So these eight scientists were protecting 16 rooms full of over 200,000 different varieties of seeds because they knew that the disappearance of plant diversity was a huge danger to the way we grow food. So although they could have been saved by the very seeds that they were guarding, they chose rather to invest in our future rather than looking to their present. And many of those varieties we actually eat today because we've crossbred the seeds that they protected with different other varieties and then got new types of seeds. So I think this is a really cool story. Um, I love the show and I hope you liked my fact. Thank you. I loved it. I love this fact. I feel speechless. Yeah. What a saga. Truly. So yeah, this refers to the Pavlovsk station, which was started in 1926 by Nikolai Vavilov with thousands of varieties of seeds that he'd collected from all over. And it was your standard like gene bank, similar to modern seed vaults, where we are protecting the genetic diversity of plants in case things get wiped out for one reason or another. We have Mm -hmm. these seeds so we can make sure we always have a good variety of crops to plant because variety is the best way to breed resilience. So during the siege of Leningrad, which was 1941 to 1944, they actually had already moved some of the station's tuber collection and seeds to another location in the city because the station itself did fall to German soldiers during Mm -hmm. the siege. And so then, according to what I found, it was actually 12 of the scientists who died of starvation during the course of the siege. And they successfully, you know, protected and, and preserved this plant diversity. And then in 2010, there was like a land development proposal that threatened the historic station. But people were like, no, no, no. And oh, uh, that that did not go through. Thank also, the December song, When the War Came, oh my God. <laughs> is about these scientists in the seed vault. I don't listen to the Decemberists, but maybe I should now. I mean, I haven't really listened to the Decemberists since I was like 14 years old. But sure. I, and I know, like I can kind of hear in my head part of the refrain for When the War Came, but I don't remember anything more about it. So I'm going to have to go back and listen. Time to revisit. <laughs> yeah. Of course, the Decemberists wrote a song. <laughs> yeah. means the seed vault during the siege of Leningrad. It's totally their vibe. Um, anyway, this is an awesome story, and I definitely am going to look into it some more. Cool. Now we have a gross one. Nice. Yay. Hi, this is Dr. Stephen McDavid. I'm in Ocean Springs, Mississippi. I'm a wound care physician, and I don't know if you're aware of the use of medical maggots. Uh, Medical maggots are actually sold by a company called Monarch Labs, monarchlab.com. Now, I've never used them, but it is uh, noteworthy that we've had patients come in that have had uh, maggots in their wound beds, and uh, it can be pretty disgusting, obviously. Uh, Medical maggots do have a role, though. They help uh, debride necrotic tissue, but they leave healthy tissue alone. 
Um, anyway, it is a uh, interesting sidelight of medicine, uh, the medical use of maggots, and uh, thought you might be interested in exploring that. Thanks very much. I have so many thoughts and feelings. <laughs> Were you not familiar with medical maggotry? No. My only familiarity with this kind of thing is I remember our former intern, Marianne Renault wrote a story for us about the medical use of leeches. Right. No, maggots are still a thing. Yeah. Because um, they're really good about only eating right. dead tissues. I assume because it takes so much less energy for them to break right. those down. That makes total sense. It's pre-digested, really. Mm. <laughs> Love that. Love a little necrosis nibble. Mm. Um, <laughs> no, I really don't. I regret it saying that as soon as it came <laughs> out of my too. mouth. But yeah, it's it's like a not super uncommon thing, especially for burn victims where you have very delicate mm. areas of both dead tissue and like very delicate, new, healthy tissue. Right. So maggots can be the safest way to keep those wounds clean. I guess. (laughs) You're like, at what cost? (laughs) The phrase maggots in the wound bed is just a bit much. Yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree it's gross. (laughs) Do I wish there was an alternative? Yes. Science, please find a way. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We're going to take another quick break, and then we'll be back with more of your facts. Okay, we are back, and I'm going to share just a couple more five-star Apple reviews to inspire you to leave your own five-star Apple reviews. Maybe we'll read them. Maybe they'll just help other weirdos find our show, but either way. So from Transfigure, we have the podcast I've always wanted, and you do too. Science trivia is the only kind of trivia I really like. Science podcasts are my favorite podcasts. Here's the intersection. But what makes... (laughs) T-W-T-I-L-T-W. A great podcast beyond its topic is the fact that the hosts are great storytellers. They don't just drop the facts and a bunch of science on your head. They share the story behind the science, including fascinating and often weird people, animals, situations, and, if available, story resolutions. Absolutely. (laughs) The hosts, particularly Rachel Feltman, have great radio voices, too. Aww. My only gripe is that I get sad when each season ends. Me, too. That's why we're coming back. Don't worry. Literally same. (laughs) Lavenius says, this podcast helped my marriage. Oh. Huh? (laughs) (laughs) Let's investigate. My husband has always called me, quote, pod, but now he says he has found, quote, my people. Oh. These adorably brilliant and contagiously giggling science nerds exploring all the weirdest and creepiest and unexpected things in the history of the world has helped him understand me a little better. And has given him something to talk to me, his own little, quote, up-talking millennial about at home. Hell but yeah. are you an up-talking millennial Twinkie? That's, that's the real. That's the, you yeah. Gotta, mm, join the club. <laughs> Which we both love. Even if it has made me more of a liability at parties, I already got us a uranium glass serving set. <gasps> Oh my so God. thank you, Popsi, and you visionary ladies who knew deep down that we all needed to know about hippo butt leeches. Wow. I love it. Not going to lie. I kind of want to dunk on your husband because it sounds like he did not realize he was married to one of the coolest people in the world. Totally. Into listening to our show. So I'm really glad we we could help him understand that. But we always knew. Mm-hmm. We knew. You great. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Here are our last few weirdo submitted facts. Hi, weirdos. I'm Shanee from Philly. Longtime listener and fan. Second time contributor. 
the weirdest slash most interesting slash saddest thing I recently learned was that sloths can die of starvation even on a full stomach. You see, sloths aren't great at temperature regulation, which is why they only live in tropical climates that have relatively standard temperatures. However, because of climate change, the tropics have been experiencing major storms, bringing lower temperatures than normal, below even 20 degrees centigrade. When it gets too cold for the sloths, the bacteria in their stomachs, which are temperature-dependent, start to die. So even though there's plenty of food around and they can have stomachs full of food, they don't have any way to digest and get the nutrients they need and end up dying. So if you don't want sloths, the cutest animals in the world, to die, help save our planet. Oh my God. Amazing. Another amazing weird fact from an amazing weirdo. What was her one last time? Was it the dildo machine? No. Her fact during our last episode was about how CAPTCHA helps train AI. Mm. So a really diverse range of subject matter. Yeah, we love you, Shani. Yeah, thank you so much. And yeah, this is true. Um, I'm devastated. Yeah, it's pretty upsetting. Also, it reminded me of a freelance piece I edited by Jason Biddle, back at the Washington Post about the harrowing journey a sloth makes weekly to poop. Oh. It's the only time they come down from their trees. To poop? Um, Yeah. And they have to come down from the trees. (laughs) Yeah. Because otherwise they'll fall out probably. (gasps) Oh. And so they shimmy down real slow and they hug the tree and they do like a little poop dance. They wiggle their butt. Oh, my God. I um, love sloths. It's a very dangerous process because they are not well adapted to surviving on the ground. I'm but sure the reason, very vulnerable. yeah, and and the reason they have these very like slow, precious poop sessions is because <laughs> their digestion is so slow because their whole bodies are so slow, so their metabolisms are as well. But yeah, they do have this microbiome that's very fussy and temperature dependent. And well, I shouldn't say fussy because it worked fine until we started messing everything up. Sure. But uh, they do need those particular microbes in order to digest their food really at all, which really makes one think about like all the stuff we've yet to learn about our own microbiomes. Like, totally. There's probably so much digestion that they help out with that yeah. we are like unaware of. And yeah, there there are other animals that have similar things, like koalas. I was going to bring up koalas. (laughs) Koalas eat eucalyptus, which is like toxic, unless they have these gut microbes. So mamas pass their gut microbes to their babies by feeding them pap, which is poop. Yeah. It's like a special poop, air quotes, (laughs) but it's poop. You know, it's just just a nice dose of, of poop, a pap. The problem that is emerging, not so much temperature related there, but there's a lot of koala chlamydia, which has always been a problem, but has been a real problem lately. And the kind of recent intervention has been grabbing koalas and dosing them with antibiotics. But Mm -hmm. then you kill the microbes in their pap, and so then their babies aren't getting the right microbes, and they can't eat their eucalyptus. Yeah. It's real bad. It's terrible. I also just like... Thinking about the symptoms of chlamydia, how it manifests in koalas is very like scary and sad because they, they screech like, go and blind. get angry and their eyes right, their eyes get all like crusty and they go yeah. blind. Yeah, it's 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 not great. No. So yeah, be kind to any sloths or koalas you meet. Mm-hmm. They may be fighting a hard battle. <laughs> Here's one about bicycles. <laughs> Hi weirdos. 
This is Darren White from New Brunswick, Canada. And the weirdest thing I learned this week was that the bicycle, which we think of as a solution to our carbon problem, was invented in response to climate change. So in 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia erupted and the resulting ash cloud uh, caused massive crop failures in Europe the following year. 1816 was known as the year without a summer and more darkly, it was known as 1800 and froze to death. Uh, the massive crop failures that led to horse and, horses and oxen being slaughtered because they were just too expensive to feed, and so people had to walk wherever they were going. So in 1817, Carl Drace invented his Luff machine, or dandy horse, which was a precursor to the bicycle, and it was invented as an alternate means of transportation. So weirdly, if you're now hopping on your dandy horse to go out and uh, help reduce global warming, you're able to do so in part due to a historical cooling event. I love a good dandy horse. Yeah, wow. <laughs> when Bill and I was on and I talked about bicycle face, mm -hmm. which is a fascinating little slice of history, I, I almost went into the whole history of bicycles because this origin is genuinely so fascinating. Darren, great voice, great fact. Loved it. And yeah, indeed, the bicycle was one of, though I will say the dandy horse is like arguably not really a bicycle. It's more like a scooter that you literally really? like sit on and like scoot your feet. Oh, right. Because <laughs> Bill was talking about it being Flintstones style yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah. It took a while before pedaling was involved at all. But it was like, it resembled sure. the, the point of a bicycle, at least. And yeah, it was one of many things that came out of this frozen gray summer, including, very famously, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Really? Yeah. She was hanging out in, like, a chill goth manner with her chill goth friends, um, <laughs> including, like, Lord Byron and, you know, everyone else who was chill and goth in yeah. the literary world at that time. <laughs> and they decide there was, like, nothing to do except lay around being goth and beautiful. <laughs> They're like, we can't go outside. The sun is covered by smog. It's cold. It's dreary. Again, goals. Yeah, and then they decided they would have like a ghost story competition. And she wrote what would become Frankenstein. Seriously? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. There's also, a lot of this is coming from, I think, an episode of The Memory Palace by Nathan Mayo, which I've talked <laughs> about on the show before. A lot of people argue that like the Church of Latter-day Saints would not exist if not for this event because it like prompted the end times migration that the founder of LDS was on when he had his supposed meeting with the Lord. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there are a bunch of bunch of cool, weird things that happen because, like, when the entire world is just plunged into, like, a summer of relative cold and darkness, like, yeah. some weird stuff's going to go down. Totally. Okay, we have a couple more facts. Hello, I'm Carla. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I want to show you some something that makes – Jurassic World even cooler. So we see the big mosasaur in Jurassic World eating the shark. And if we look, when its mouth is open, there is a set of teeth in the center of its jaw. Those are called pterygoid teeth. And this is a really interesting feature because it's shared with snakes. And one of the ideas is that the mosasaur may not actually be a dinosaur. It may be a monitor lizard that is a sister group to pythons. And so this may not be a dinosaur. It may actually be a giant snake or a giant monitor lizard. And this is one of the coolest facts I learned when I was taking courses uh, with the University of Alberta. Whoa. Yeah. I love a reptile fact. Yes, absolutely. What's cool 
about this one is that there's still like some work to be done on figuring out exactly where these guys fit on the evolutionary tree. So monitor lizards and most other lizards have teeth that form upright and then gradually move to replace the old teeth. Mm -hmm. Snake teeth come in horizontally and then like manage to like rotate up and erupt, which sounds gnarly to me. I mean, I've never, I've never been a snake. I don't know how it feels, (laughs) but it sounds unpleasant. And so the question of like based on the fossils we do have like can we determine which kind of teeth these were yeah is it's like ongoing so. oh my god i'm on the edge of my seat <laughs> science hurry it up okay um here's one more actually these last two these last, last three were from before my recent call to action these were ones that people just sent in after our last voice message episode wanting to be a part of it so you can do that too you can send a voice message with a fact any dang time you please okay here's a great one hi my name is eric from princeton new jersey and my favorite weird fact is that there is a genus of bark flies that live in brazilian caves where the females have penises so the four species of the genus neotrogla uh, so classified because they are responsible for producing and laying the eggs also have an organ called the gynosome, which, unlike the hyena pseudopenis, which has been discussed on a previous Weirdest Thing episode, is a bona fide penetrative sex organ. There's way more details than I could go into in a minute, but some other fun facts about it is that uh, mating between these two, uh, between these species, can last for 40 to 70 hours, and uh, the gynosome actually has spines on it, which the female uses to latch on so tightly to the male that if you try to pull them apart, the male's body will actually break before uh, they become detached. So she is actually uh, attached to him more firmly than he is attached to himself. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I love oh that phrasing. I don't know why. But... It's so metal. Yeah, so this is fascinating. As Eric said, we did talk about pseudopenises, these very large clitorises on hyenas that make one ask whether any of the words we use to classify sex and sex organs even have any meaning at all. Yeah. But that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah, those can be kind of horrifying because they actually give birth through their clitorises. It's going to be so a we no don't for like me, that. Dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but these flies, they do indeed have what you would call a more true penetrative sex organ. So the male does ejaculate, but it's inside his own body. What? And, and erect. Why is bug sex so weird? <laughs> and then the, the female has an erect, again, words. What do they mean? Yeah. I ask you. <laughs> Science. Come on. So the quote female shoves this erect member, this turgid <laughs> organ, in there, and the, the semen, like, finds its way into like a, a pocket in, sure. in the erect organ. That penis has an inflated base. It is covered in spines. <laughs> so it's not just, you know, what a true penis. It's a truly horrifying penis, <laughs> like duck penis level horrifying. Oh, um, they are really scary. <laughs> and so like the question is like, why? Why? Yeah. And of course the, you know, if you're like, well, then why do they call them the females and them the males? It's because the female with the hardened mm-hmm. organ is still the one that has the eggs and then right. is carrying or fertilizing the eggs and laying them. Sure. Again, words, meaningless. <laughs> Science. We love to put things in boxes. Maybe some of them are made up. Wow. 
really getting into it today. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> the question is why? And I, I was reading some work from researchers who think that maybe it's because they live in these super dry caves and um, live mostly off of bat droppings and carcasses. So like really just like mm. not a great life. Totally. Um, and they're hard, those food sources are, are hard to come by. But females actually get a meal along with their sperm because the males package their sperm into spermatophores that also are loaded with nutrients. Oh. So the argument is that, like, usually the male-female sex dynamic is that males benefit from mating as much as possible because Mm -hmm. they can produce, like, practically infinite offspring if they can just find females that are fertile to keep mating with. So they're competing for mates and trying to meet with as many females as they can. And that then the females have to carry the actual burden by having enough nutrients to grow this offspring and then often have the nutrients to like care for that offspring. Mm -hmm. That's why in many animals that reproduce sexually, the females are very picky. The males have to like compete for their attention. I was just doing a little bird. (laughs) Your gestures through this whole, this whole bit have just been on point. (laughs) Just, you know, sex ed with Rachel Feldman. Yes. So In these animals, the females have the incentive to want to mate as much as possible because it's not just excess sperm Mm -hmm. if they mate with more males than it takes to create one, you know, brood. Yeah. Uh, It's free food. So the males then have to, like, be choosy. That's interesting. Because they can't just keep giving up these nutrient packets all the time. It's a whole different structure. Yeah. And so it may be that the females evolved this this way of like anchoring themselves to their mate yeah. to get around that. Yeah. Which is just so fascinating because like the idea that once you flip the script on who carries the burden during reproduction, once you change that, like it like all the politics change. Yeah, totally. And then suddenly you've got a penis covered in spines. <laughs> um so wow. <laughs> what, what a journey. What a journey. <laughs> these are some great facts. I'm really proud of all of our weirdos for bringing these to our attention. Jess, what was the weirdest thing you learned this week? That's a good question. The weirdest thing I learned this week is that de- the Decemberists wrote a song about <laughs> a seed vault in the siege of Leningrad. That's not true. The weirdest thing was definitely the spiny penises because now I'm thinking about like the concept of sex. Yeah, I agree. Spiny penises. Bugs that are attached more to their mate than their mate is attached to themselves. <laughs> wow, that's something that's like that's codependency. Big you know? time. Yeah. You gotta love yourself before you can love someone else, or maybe they'll rip out your internal sperm pouch. The weirdest thing I learned this week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, 
Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.